chapter 6. We will finish off this two-part series. As I told the saints last week, because we had such a mass exodus to Yosemite last week, I didn't feel right about continuing in the series on Revelation, and I only have two weeks. So I thought it would be good, I was inspired by Eric's series of messages, to look in detail at the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. As I said last week, there are actually seven uh, items, if you will, in the list. And uh, we looked at three last week, we'll look at the final four this week. And uh, let me just say uh, that to many Christians, I believe this this, uh, passage on the armor of God, as it's called, is vague to a lot of believers because we're told to put on things like righteousness and faith and salvation. And now if it were, um, you know, a helmet or a breastplate, you could reach out and pick it up. But because these are, uh, in a way, unseen things that were to put on, I think Christians kind of, you know, put it away as well. That's, that's a nice theory, but I'm not quite sure what it means. And yet it's a very, very practical portion of the Word of God. And so hopefully we'll see that as we uh, look at the passage together. Just to uh, bring the Yosemiteites up to speed, we'll qu- give a quick uh, review of what we saw last week. Beginning in verse 10, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. He's addressing believers here. The armor of God, as it's called here in Ephesians 6, is not for the unsaved. Uh, the unsaved don't have the armor of God. They don't have access to it. You cannot even claim to wear the armor of God until you come to Jesus Christ, until you're born again. As we saw, the Bible clearly teaches uh, that if you don't know Jesus, you're walking according to the prince of the power of the air. The devil's not your enemy. He's your master. It says in 1 John that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And really, it's not until you come to the Lord Jesus Christ that the devil really becomes your enemy. And you find out real fast that uh, he doesn't sleep. Better yet, though, to have the devil as your enemy than God, right? Praise God. Then uh, <clears throat> verse 11 is the command. It, we're commanded to put on the whole armor of God. That's very important. In other words, we don't have it on by default. It's not just there. It's something we have to do. And if we don't put it on, we don't have it on. <laughs> And so we should sit up and pay attention here. Because here's a command for me to do, and it's not some vague portion of Scripture I can skip over. Here's a command, and I need to understand what God means when He says to put on the armor of God. Because there are specific things in my life which we'll talk about, which I must do in order to obey this command. Let me also address, there are many misconceptions about the armor of God. Another one is, I think many Christians think that we only need to have on the armor of God when the battle is thick, you know, when I'm going through great distress or feeling great temptation. Uh Uh-oh, time to put on the armor of God. Nothing can be further from the truth. He doesn't say that here. All times and all places. Let me tell you, when you got saved, brother or sister, the battle started. And the battle has not stopped and it will not stop until you go to be with Jesus. Amen? I know. I've got this flesh with me every day. And I, it, it starts speaking to me the, morning, the moment I get up in the morning until I go to bed at night. 
The devil doesn't sleep. And the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil are the big three. The world is out there all the time. You know, with it's come here, I have something for you. So the battle never stops. We always need to have on the armor of God. And it's not an option. Uh, God chooses armor for a soldier for a very good reason. Because if a soldier were stupid enough to take off his armor in the middle of a battle, we all know what would happen to him. And that's what he's trying to communicate to us. We can't afford to be without the armor of God in our lives. In verse 12, he tells us the uh, scene of the battle. You're familiar with the list there. Principalities and powers and so on. And I want you to just think, isn't it amazing and isn't it wonderful that you and I as believers can actually do things in the spiritual realm? That's incredible. Forget Hollywood. They don't even know what the spiritual realm is. But it's real. It's there. And God has a few, just a few, soldiers in His army. True believers who can actually do something in that realm. That's incredible. Isn't it? Things for good. Things to glorify God. Things to literally be on the right side and do something about it. That's incredible. And we should never lose the sense of wonder or obligation that we have to put on the armor and fight the good fight, as Paul said. Well, in verse 13, he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, it says in my version. And um, I want to address, we use the word armor of God. You may even have that as your header, heading on this section. The problem is we don't have a good word to translate the original Greek. There's a problem with the word armor. You know what it is? Armor implies only defense. Right? Armor, you know, that's the breastplate, that's the greaves, that's the uh, cuirass, you know, the helmet, the things that protect me. And, and just the word armor implies merely defense. But the word is, in the original is really the word we get the word panoply from. You've heard that word. It, it really means complete outfit. That's what it means. And as you know, there are two weapons besides the defense in here. This is not just to, you know kind of curl up and, and uh, boy, I sure hope they don't hurt me. You know, there's offense in here and defense. And so the word there, panoply, really is saying that it's complete. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that there are seven items? Remember the word number seven? We saw that in Revelation. It means it's the, it's the number that stands for completeness. And it's so like God, isn't it? You know, the point is we have everything we need to, to mount the spiritual battle. It's like our God. And so he says, take up the whole arm of God. He's literally saying, take up the panoply. It's one complete. I either have the whole thing on or I have the whole thing off, as we'll, as we'll see. And we began last week, we saw the girdle of truth, or the belt of truth. And um, I think that's a tough one for a lot of Christians. What does that mean? We saw it really covers four areas of our lives. First, our attitude. If I have on the belt of truth, the opposite of truth is deceit or hypocrisy. And to not have on the belt, maybe that's an easier way to approach it to begin with here. I'm a hypocrite, you know. I can go around smiling, going to church, reading my Bible, but I don't have on the belt of truth. I have some unconfessed sin. I have some grievance against a brother or sister that I haven't settled. Nobody might even know it. But the devil knows it. And he'll use it. And that's what God is warning us about here. If there's an unconfessed sin in my life, 
a grievance, a bitterness, or, or some secret sin. I'll tell you, it's plain to these spiritual places here in verse 12. And I'm ripe. I'm, I'm open for attack. And I will be defeated. Also in my attitude, as we saw, it, it's a sense of humility. Judging myself rightly. Romans 12, let, let no man think more highly of himself than he ought. That's truth. Having on the belt of truth. Uh, second area is my speech. That one's obvious. That's what we're usually thinking of, think of when we think of truth. You know, the opposite is lies. Well, I'm not a liar. No. But we can exaggerate. We can... Uh, flattery is, is lying. You know, it's the opposite of truth. If I don't have on the belt of truth, false praise, broken promises. There's a whole area where we need to have on the uh, belt of truth. It says earlier in this same book, Ephesians, he says, Speaking the truth in love. Let each one speak truth with his neighbor. Putting aside lying. Third area is our motives. I need to have truth in my motives. I need to be sincere. Know what are your motives. Thank God the Lord Jesus is like that, huh? There is no one like Him who has your best interest at heart with no ulterior motives. Isn't that great? And if I have on the belt of truth, that's the way I am when I'm dealing with people. You know, the world uses people, and we can do that. Use people for our own gain, for our own uh, pleasure sometimes. Having on the belt of truth means having a sincere care for other people, an honest desire for their good at whatever cost to myself, like the Lord Jesus. And the fourth area is an area of values. It's the opposite of the world. The world is, has a big lie. We just talked about one lie last week and all of the uh, baby lies that come out of that one. The lie of evolution. Everything from the meaning to life, what God is like, if God even exists, why I'm here. It has all kind of uh, offspring. We'll just, t- we'll just mention one lie that if we have on the belt of truth, we can combat and that's, the, the, why am I here? The meaning of life. You know, the simplest believer with a Bible in his hand that he simply believes is wiser than all the philosophers of the world put together. Think of that. You put together all the wise men of the world and you ask them, you know, what's the meaning of life? Why am I here? Wouldn't it be interesting to see a TV program like that about six hours long and hear all the crazy answers you get? And of course, if you use evolution as your basis... You, there's, yeah, there is no meaning. I'm a bag of chemicals. Uh, it's, it's meaningless. There's no purpose to life. You could get a, just a, a baby believer. It wouldn't take him six hours. Take him a few seconds. The meaning of life is to know God, to love Him, and to serve Him. And the only way you can do that is through Jesus Christ, His Son. You're done. That's it. Isn't that simple? The truth, having our, our waist girded with truth. Boy, let me tell you, there's a lot of lies floating around out there. We're a minority, brothers and sisters. Think of that. We have this uh, treasure, as it says in earthen vessels. We're just a few people with the truth in a world of lies. Let it out. Tell others. Be girded with truth. Second item we saw was the breastplate of righteousness. And uh, I think you'll understand that's not talking about the position I have in Christ, my positional righteousness. That's, I can't affect that. 
Once you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are made the righteousness of God in Him. Positionally, right now, I'm fit for heaven. And I can't alter that. But practically, if I permit sin in my life, my breastplate is off. I'm gone. It's practical righteousness. Having on the breastplate of righteousness simply means keeping short accounts with God and with men. It's that simple. And if I don't, I'm going to be defeated. The third item, which, and that was the last one we saw last week, was a preparation, having our feet shod with a preparation of the gospel of peace. And uh, whenever you study a passage like this where you have a list, it's, uh, I always love it when God does something a little different on some of the items in the list. And here he did. When he talked about the other two, he just simply said the article corresponds to the belt, the breastplate, and then what it was. Truth, righteousness. But when he talked about the shoes, he says the preparation. He added some words of the gospel of peace. Notice that when God does things like that. You see, too often believers can do what they call sharing the gospel and it's nothing more than a disjointed set of verses and illustrations that probably confuse people more than help them. The preparation, we need to be prepared. I need to be a spiritual man or woman if I'm going to go out and share the gospel with someone. It's a spiritual work that requires co-laboring with God, 1 Corinthians 3, being sensitive to where is He in this person's life. That's not an easy thing to co-labor with the Holy Spirit. We need to be constantly sensitive to what He is doing in a person's life. Knowing the Word of God, going no further nor lagging behind the Holy Spirit as He works. The preparation, being prepared with the gospel of peace. Okay, now with those words of introduction, we're going to pick up for those of you that were here last week, new material beginning in verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Here's item number four, the shield of faith. Now, first of all, many of your translations say above all. Uh, it really is better translated in addition. It's, it's not the idea that above all, like the shield of faith is the greatest piece of them all. It's the idea that is in addition to all the rest of them, and it sort of covers you while you're in the battle. Because in, in the days of the Roman soldiers, when these words were written, there were two kinds of shields. Uh, if you've seen any Hollywood movies of sword fights and stuff, you know, there's the one that they hold in their hand while they're in a fight, and it's about this big. But the Romans had a shield, and this is the one that he's talking about here. It was two and a half feet by four feet. It was a big thing. And it was meant to protect the whole body from, like, arrows and spears, and, and fiery darts, and stuff like that. It was a body shield. And that's the kind of shield he's talking about. Above all, while I'm fighting, while I have on the rest of my armament, I have above all this big shield of faith. You see, that's the idea. Not that it's more important, but that it's kind of all, you know, covers us, protects us while we're in the fight. Okay, well, let's get specific. Faith, that is often a nebulous word to people. Simply put, Faith is not following my senses. That's one simple way to define it. My senses, what, what my eyes tell me I need to do, you know, or what the real situation is, or my ears. Uh, we have input, sources of input to our brain from five senses. Actually, there's a sixth one. Did you know that? That, that, that can give us signals to make, cause us to make decisions. And it's not ESP. 
It's, it's spelled F-L-E-S-H. It's the flesh. My desires, my lusts, are a sixth sense that can tend to govern a believer's life. And, live, and having the shield of faith means not following those impulses. Not heeding the flesh. But following the Word of God and what He says, which is 99.99% of the time going to be the opposite of what my eyes tell me or what my flesh tells me. Isn't that right? Absolutely. And that's a tough lesson to learn for a lot of Christians. It's so easy. We naturally walk by sight. We've done that our whole lives. We have to learn to walk by faith. And I tell you, that shield can get heavy, can't it? Yeah. You know, after a while, get a little tired and kind of drop that shield, you know. Begin to walk by sight again. And sure enough, that's when that fiery dart comes in. Incoming. That's supposed to keep off the incoming. My flesh. It sends a constant signal. And it basically is this. I want it now. That's the flesh signal. Second Corinthians 5 says we walk by faith, not by sight. And there that word sight is encompassing all of those physical input devices from my eyes and ears to my flesh. There's a word that's become popular recently. It's called oxymoron. You ever heard that word? Oxymoron? It's, it's just a contradiction in terms is what it is. But uh, for some reason the public's jumped all over it. I love oxymorons in the Bible. It's where you have words that apparently contradict each other. Um, one of the great ones, of course, is the Lord Jesus when He talks about His deity in John 8 and He says, Before Abraham was... I am. That's an oxymoron. It can't be unless he's God. A great oxymoron out of the lips of Peter was, um, not so, Lord. You get the oxymoron there? And there's one in Hebrews 11 that I love, and it applies to this shield of faith. It's describing Moses. And it says, He endured as seeing him who is invisible. Isn't that good? What a tribute to a man of God. He endured as seeing him who was invisible. How can you see someone who's invisible? Moses did. This is a very practical command. And so I'm going to get real specific. And a good way to do it is to take the life of Moses very briefly. John is in the midst of a great series on, the, on Abraham, so I'll leave him alone. And he'll pick him up next week, Lord willing. But just think about how Moses had that shield of faith up. And how it's so practical. It, it begins in, in uh, Hebrews 11. The first thing it said about him was that he refused to be, refused to be called the daughter, uh, the son of, the, of Pharaoh's daughter. In other words, he was next in line to be Pharaoh of Egypt. And he turned that down. That's what it's saying. Now, don't you think that his flesh was sending him opposing signals? Huh? Man, he was raised in comfort in the palace at uh, Memphis. Nothing but the soft life. And he was next in line to be over it all. It says that he forsook the treasures of Egypt. There's a lot of wealth in that statement. He said no to all that. I'll guarantee you, his flesh was saying, hey, I wonder if I want to give all this stuff up. You know, I want it now. And he said no. Why? Because he endured as seeing him who was invisible. He saw something much greater and much more important. The unseen God and His people whom God was calling Him to be with. 
He uh, went to Midian, lived there for 40 years, and God called him back to Egypt. Number one, think about this, he was wanted for murder back in Egypt. I'll tell you, I have a feeling he had second thoughts. You know, I don't know if I want to go back there. You know, they might hang me. Or worse. Uh, secondly, <clears throat> he'd had 40 years of a pleasant life. Pastoral life, shepherd, you know, married. He was a happy man. Why go back and, and face the hassle that he knew he was going to face in Egypt? His flesh must have been saying, Lord, send somebody else. In fact, that's what he said, wasn't it? Remember that? Lord, take Aaron, my brother. Now, he can sp- I'm not a good spokesman. Remember that? Can you relate to that? I can. Lord, not me, somebody else. You know, somebody more qualified. Even though God has already said, no, you're the one I want. It's like, we know better. You know, his flesh was saying, no. But by faith, you see, that's the point. He obeyed God. His flesh is... His senses were saying, no, I don't want to go. But God said, no, I want you to go. And so he laid aside the signals from the flesh and said, Lord, I'll do what you want. He faced Pharaoh. Boy, you talk about fear. Here's the most powerful man in the world probably at that time. And he confronted him. He rebuked him. Uh, I tell you, Pharaoh wanted his hide more than once. The flesh said, let's get out of here, you know, more than once, I'm sure. And then finally, if that weren't enough, then when they finally get out of Egypt, okay, now the good times roll, right? Think about it. What was Moses' life after Egypt? It was probably worse than in Pharaoh's court, wasn't it? Confronting Pharaoh. Here he is with a million plus ingrates who are accusing him of taking them away from the good life and we want to go back. And what are we doing out here in this wilderness? Don't you think more than once that his flesh said, Hey, I resign. Let somebody else do this. You see, but they were the people of God, and that's where God wanted him. And it's not that he began to enjoy it, but he wanted to please God more than anything else, you see. Man, that means so much to God. When we got the flesh, when we got the eyes and the ears saying, Go do this. And God's saying, No, I want you to do that. And we say no to the flesh. And we go over here and say, Okay, Lord, I want to please you. Boy, that honors him. That pleases him. That's having up that shield of faith. He endured, Moses did, as seeing him who was invisible. And I won't take much more time on this, but there's a key word that's associated with faith. That section of Hebrews from about chapter 9 to chapter 12. You ever highlight your Bible with colored pencils? It's a good thing to do. One of the things I love to do is I'll be reading and all of a sudden there's a word that begins to appear over and over again. What well, wasn't in this place? Romans is great for that. I mean, you can make it a rainbow from beginning to end. A word will start in chapter 3 and go through chapter 6. You know, you hadn't seen it before and all of a sudden it's there 20 times. Well, there's a word that occurs in Hebrew starting chapter 9 through verse 12. It hasn't appeared before at all. In one form or another, it's there nine times and the word is endured. And that section is on faith. Isn't that interesting? The words faith and endure go together. And that makes sense. That shield gets heavy. We get tired of holding up that shield by walking by faith. We want to take a holiday and uh, you know, feed the flesh a little while. Huh? Can you relate to that? Am I the only one? You know, Let's drop that shield a little bit. We need to endure, you see. That's why he uses that word here. 
Hang in there. The devil never takes a holiday from the battle. We can't afford to. You know, I've often wondered, uh, in verse 12 here, we had the list of the hierarchy of the devil and his demons. There is a structure. They are organized. It says that he has schemes. We can't imagine what we're up against, by the way. It's incredible. And I've often wondered, and the Bible really doesn't teach what the truth is on this thing, what the demonic strategy is. You know, men, you, you know, in basketball and in football, you can have zone defense and you can have man-to-man, right? And I often wonder, how does the devil operate in that? Does he, does he have zone, you know, does he work in a zone offense where he just kind of geographically attacks an area? Or is it man-to-man? I have a feeling, in the, uh, first of all, for, for the unsaved, I think it's zone. Because they're not his enemies. The unsaved people are not the enemies of the devil. It says the whole world lies into the sway of the wicked one. They're in his hip pocket. He doesn't need a lot of men, so to speak. But I'll guarantee you it's the believers that he's working full time on. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's man to man. Maybe sometimes he's double and triple teaming. You know? Remember Paul? When the amateur tried to cast out the devils and they said, Who are you? Jesus we know and Paul we know. But we don't know who you are. Paul was known. I have a feeling he was probably uh, quadruple teamed. You know? But the point is, you and I, brothers and sisters, we're, we're a rare breed in this world. And what the, the moment we came to Jesus Christ and were dwelt by the Holy Spirit, we became his marked enemies. We're marked out. And he would love nothing more than to set us to the side. Just remove us from the battle. Because we are the only ones that can have effect in the battle. And if he can sideline us, he's won. You see. And if we're not seeking his kingdom first, if our priorities are not the things of God rather than our own, if we don't have up that shield of faith, we've lost. He's won. And he's over there laughing in the corner. I was reminded of uh, our first, I mean my wife and I, our first great engagement in this area as believers, we were young believers, as uh, Dave was going on and on about how great Yosemite is uh, yesterday and last night, all the way up until he talked himself to sleep, you know. Um, Wouldn't it be great to live in Yosemite? Huh? Wouldn't it be wonderful? My place is the Redwoods. I think a lot of you know that, up, up north. I was raised going there every summer, and it was my lifelong dream to live up there. My wife and I got married in September 71. We got saved April 72. September 72 rolled around, the anniversary, our first anniversary, and of course we were going to go back to the place where we spent our honeymoon in the Redwoods. And while we were there, we dropped the shield of faith. And I was more me than her. I said, you know, let's look around. You never know, we could move up here. And we came this close to not ever knowing anybody in this room. Uh... Because the devil saw the shield was down, and he had that temptation waiting. We first we began, you know, you see these these uh, three by five cards up in the offices, prime land, you know, ten acres, and as we're bouncing over the you know potholes in the mud out in the sticks, brushing the trees away from the car, trying to get to the land, you know, we, reality began to set in until the devil had his place, and it was up on a I'll never forget it. The road was called Fickle Hill Road. Back, 
Oh, that sounds funny, but it was... It, no, no, no. This was a beautiful place up behind Arcata, about 10 miles north of Eureka, in the Redwoods. Uh, Fickle Hill Road was a fairly main road paved and went right by it. It was uh, graded. It had electricity. It had water. And not only was it in the Redwoods, but it was up on here where you could see the ocean. I mean, what more can you want? 8000 bucks for 10 acres. And so we went down to the realtor's office and I remember, t- I, can, I still see it in my mind, I remember talking to this guy, and I could feel the warfare going on inside. You know, man, I'd love to buy this place. We could do it right now. But, you know, God's merciful to young believers. And uh, somehow he spared us from that. And as we got home and, and prayed about it and thought about it, and Hebrews 11 had a lot to do with it for me. Because if you read about the Old Testament saints in Hebrews 11, one of the things he keeps stressing is the places they stayed, that they left behind that they didn't see this as a permanent place, but they were looking for a country, uh, for a uh, city whose builder and architect is God, you know. And, the, and I learned the lesson back then, and praise God, never forgotten it, that when it comes to decisions like that, my flesh, and the world, by the way, is going to reinforce this, is saying, here's the place I would like to live most. You know? But that's, that's the flesh. That's not, that's not the sight. God is saying... Here are the people I want you to serve me with. And right now, you're those people. It's not the place. It's the people. And God's uh, people that he's chosen for me to be with on this sojourn through the earth are down here in the asphalt neon lights of the Bay Area. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, I'm going to be buried here unless the Lord says otherwise. You know, my flesh says, the Redwoods! But God says, no, the Bay Area. So here we are. Well, that's the shield of faith. The next element is in uh, verse 17, second half, and the uh, first part, pardon me, and take the helmet of salvation. Okay, a lot of people get confused on that. They say, oh, it means that they get, need to get saved. No. Who is he talking to here? Believers. So think about it. How can I, as a believer, take up the helmet of salvation? Well, it's really simple. He's talking here about assurance. He's talking about the full enjoyment of God's salvation. And that's like a helmet. When I have full assurance, when I'm enjoying, when I have the joy of God's salvation, as David said in Psalm 53, then I can't be attacked in that area, you see. But when I have a lack of assurance, I'm defeated, I'm powerless. How effective can I be for God if I don't even have assurance of my own salvation? Think about it, you see. Or there are subtler ways in which I can not have on this helmet of salvation. I can forget how much I've been forgiven. I can forget how great a salvation I have. Do you ever do that? I do that. And as a result, if I don't have that helmet on, I can become loveless and unforgiven. appreciating and, and uh, praising God for my salvation when it's really not in my uppermost of my thoughts. I can lose sight of other people's need for a Savior. When I, when I forget how much I needed Christ, I forget how much others need Him. And it'll just pour cold water on my burden for the lost if I don't have on that helmet of salvation. There's a great little tract written by George Cutting many years ago. 
And uh, the title kind of summarizes three aspects that we need to be constantly aware of in our own lives as believers. The title of the tract is Safety, Certainty, and Enjoyment. Brother's up her nodding her head. She's read it. Great little tract. Safety, Certainty, Enjoyment. Safety. It, isn't it wonderful to be safe in Jesus? Huh? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8. Isn't that great? Man, I'll never get over that. Certainty. Isn't it great to know, no matter what happens, the best is yet to come? I mean, for the world, the worst thing to do is to die. For me, that's being present with the Lord. (laughs) And enjoyment. Day to day, reveling, basking in the salvation that God has so freely given you at such great expense to Himself. We should be doing that daily. Have that helmet on all the time. If I'm constantly praising God for my so great salvation, all of these things will be true. I'll be close to God. I'll be undefeated. The devil can't get me. I have a burden for the lost. I want to tell others so much. You know, it's so true about cars and, and detergent, you know. We get excited about those things. We tell other people. Well, if we're excited about our salvation... If we have, I have that helmet on, I'm going to tell others, right? It's just natural. Okay, the sixth item. Second part. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Here we go again. Notice the extra little phrase. He didn't just say the sword of the Word like he did the others. He said the sword of the Spirit. That's very important. It's a special sword. It's the sword of the Spirit. Uh, in um, medieval stories, you know, back in the days of the knights and all that stuff, there are two famous swords that could only be used by one person. One of them is Excalibur. You ever heard of Excalibur? You know, that was a sword that was stuck in a stone and nobody could get it out except one person, and it was King Arthur. Of course, this is all myth, you know, but the illustration applies here. And in his hands, I mean, he, he could not be, be defeated. That, that, that sword was like a magic sword almost, you see. But it, you see, that sword was useless unless it was in the hands of Arthur. And of course, uh, more recently in the cartoons, in the comics, starting back, I think it started back in the 30s, Prince Valiant and the Singing Sword. Same idea, you know. Only in the hands of the right person could it, could it do any good. That's why he calls this the Sword of the Spirit. You know, you and I are powerless to use this thing. It'd be like one of those big broadswords, you know, you go and try to pick the thing up and you couldn't get anywhere with it. It's not you and me that are effective with this word. It's the Holy Spirit. He is the one that applies it to the heart. We may read it, we may memorize it, we may share it, but it's the Holy Spirit that wields it, you see. The sword of the Spirit. In the list, it's the first weapon, by the way. In the, in the panoply. It's two-edged. Learn that from Hebrews 4. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, even able to pierce to the dividing asunder of joints and marrow and soul and spirit. Where does soul end and spirit start? Do you know? <laughs> I don't know, but the Holy Spirit does. It says He can get right in there. The Holy Spirit can do that, you see, with His Word. Now, we have to be careful. I've heard Christians, when they talk about the sword of the word, they talk about applying it to people. You know, like, you know, they've gone up and... That's, that's, not, that's not right. Who's the en- Is the enemy people? No. The enemy is Satan and his hosts. Verse 12, there's the enemy. 
Now, we use the Word of God in the battle with people, but we need to be careful, brothers and sisters. We're not poking people with the Word of God. First, we do the damage to the unseen hosts. They want to spread their lies and keep that veil of blindness over the unsaved. Okay? So, there's something uh, unique about the, the Word of God. It doesn't kill when applied to people. It wounds. But... It wounds pride and self-sufficiency. Why? For the purpose of giving healing and life. Isn't that interesting? What an unusual sword. So, it, yeah, it, it's a killer when it comes to the unseen hosts and wicked in high places. But when it comes to people, God intends the Word of God to search deep for the purpose of healing and giving life. And be careful, we're not just talking about quoting verses here. You know, some Christians think just quoting a verse somehow has a magical effect or something. No, it means wielding it uh, with the right verse at the right moment. A great example, of course, is the Lord Jesus in his temptation in Matthew 4. Every time when the devil threw his fiery dart and he had up that shield of faith, he brought up the sword to fight back and he quoted the word of God right on target. And of all places, out of the book of Deuteronomy. How many memory verses have you got from the book of Deuteronomy? (laughs) Three times Jesus quoted Deuteronomy to the devil. And finally the devil gave up. He had had enough wounds from that sword. He couldn't take anymore. But he departed for a season, it says. He was going to be back. For me, I can remember the sword of the Word of God doing its work for the first time in my life, probably with Romans 3.23. One of the simplest verses in the Bible, one of the first memory verses for a young believer. For all have sinned and what? Short of the glory of God. Yeah. Simple verse. And I don't know how many sermons I'd heard, how many Christians had shared with me, you know, witnessed to me, but that verse, I just could not shake it. I heard it a couple of times, and it was, just, it was so final, you know? And there was no wiggle room for me. All have sinned. There were no exceptions. And then it went on to say, it falls short of the glory of God. And, I, and in my unsaved days, I began to understand what God was really like fall short of the glory of God. And that verse wouldn't let me go. And that was probably one of the key verses God used as a brother in Concord wielded the sword, but it was the Holy Spirit that applied it to my life. Isn't that wonderful? Think about that verse, Romans 3.23, written around 50, 60 A.D. How many times do you think the Holy Spirit has applied that verse huh, to people's hearts and helped them see their own sin and bring them to salvation in Jesus Christ? And you know what? It still hasn't lost its edge. It's just as powerful as it ever was. Take up the sword. Now, of course, we're not talking just about witnessing here. The sword of the Spirit uh, applied to the um, unseen, you know, wicked hosts. Uh, I need to apply it to my own life. Be careful. You know, we're not just talking about well, this is only applicable to witnessing to people, right? Don't be deceived like uh, he says in James. Don't behold yourself in this mirror and walk away the same man. You know, let God apply it to your heart and to others as well, other believers. Okay, well, the seventh item to complete the panoply is verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Wow. A few extra words on this one. And let me say, some people like to exclude prayer 
uh, from, as an item in the panoply. Nothing could be more incorrect. As he's giving us this section on the armor of God, how does he bring in prayer? He says, praying always. Do you understand the importance of that verb tense? In other words, while I'm doing all this other stuff, putting on the breastplate and the helmet, praying always. In other words, it's in with all the rest. It takes place while I'm doing all these other things. <coughs> you say, well, why didn't God choose an item out of the armor? Well, I believe it's because it had no good counterpart in the Roman's armor. If you were to liken prayer to any kind of, and it's a weapon more than anything else, I believe, you'd have to come up with a, a modern weapon like the cruise missile. Let me give you an example. In fact, Paul gives us an example right here in verse 19. As he talks about prayer, he says, And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. There's the cruise missile. Do you see it? Do you know where Paul was when he wrote these words? He's in Rome. He's a prisoner in chains, as he goes on to say. He's in the Mamertine prison in Rome. He's writing to the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, a thousand miles away. And as those Ephesian saints took these words to heart and they got down on their knees and they mentioned the word Paul in their prayers and said, Lord, give him boldness. boldness. They were sending a cruise missile and it targeted, targeted not just a building, but a person. And I'll promise you that God strengthened Paul in his inner man as those people prayed. And there was uh, business done in the spiritual realm as a result of those prayers a thousand miles away. Isn't that incredible? That's better than a cruise missile. Yet, how often do we give the enemy a break and don't even use it? Huh? I am convinced that this item in the panoply of God is the most underrated piece of equipment in the whole arsenal. Just because it seems the most unlikely and the weakest component. What in the world can I do in the battle of God when I'm down on my knees, helpless, asking for help? It's the most unimpressive act you could ever think of. And that's exactly why God uses it, you see. He is not going to demonstrate himself with a big show, you know, when I'm eloquent and I'm in my strength. God delights in showing himself strong in our weakness. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. And we are never weaker, brothers and sisters, than we're down, when we're down on our knees pleading for God to work to help us. And it could be a thousand, it could be 20,000 miles away. He says that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Well, I wish we could study the Greek in that. I don't know it all myself, but I do know that the words there, they strain the English to try to translate them. He's saying that prayer is so powerful because it's powerful when a, a righteous man uh, prays that powerful things are done. He's stressing the power of prayer there. Righteous. Well, if you're a believer, you're righteous in Christ. And if you have on your breastplate, if you have no unconfessed sin, you're righteous practically, get on your knees. Or you can do great things for God. He delights in using the weak, the, uh, the least likely, you see. So that way he gets all the glory. The enemy has no defense against prayer except to keep us from using it. Well, as we conclude here, you know, we've been talking about armor and the offensive pieces as well. 
You know, a real soldier would not have to be coaxed to put on his armor. You know, the captain wouldn't have to, you know, as, as they're facing the enemy out in the Roman days, you know, with their spears and their arrows and everything else, he, they would have to be reminded, oh, by the way, put on your armor now before you go out there. Would they? We laugh. And yet, I need to be reminded because God's reminding me here to put my armor on. Imagine how foolish it would be to see a Roman soldier out there in the middle of the battle beginning to take his armor off. He'd be crazy. He'd also be dead. You know? And yet, it's subtle, brothers and sisters. Just as we need to have it on as a whole, we, we tend to take it off as a whole. The whole thing. Let me, let me give you a scenario here. The first thing we do, we drop that shield of faith. That's, that tends to be the, the, the sequence. We begin to live by sight. You know? All right, I've been following God long enough. It's time for me to uh, make a few decisions here. Feed the flesh a little while. Let's indulge in a little sin. You know? Start to walk by sight and not by faith. Drop that shield. Well, the other, the other people don't see it, but the devil does. And those fiery darts start coming right now. And they're designed just for you, just for me. Uh, I, I believe, you know, that the devil and his legions have profiles. They know you. They know me, brothers and sisters. They have profiles on believers. And they know our weaknesses. And those fiery darts are targeted right at me. The dart that may affect you may not phase me. And so he's got darts with my name written on it. So the shields come in. The, the, pardon me, the, the darts come in. The shields down. And so the second thing, we indulge ourselves in a, in a little sin, maybe. And that breastplate's dropped off. That breastplate of righteousness, it's gone. Now, I'm, positionally, I'm ready for heaven, but practically now, I'm defenseless. I'm like that city in uh, Proverbs without walls. You know. Next thing, I think the third thing that comes off is the helmet of salvation. We lose the joy of our salvation. We forget how much we've forgiven. We've been forgiven. In some cases, in an extreme case, we might even begin to doubt our salvation. The helmet comes off. First the, the shield, then the, then the uh, breastplate, then the helmet. Next to drop is the belt of truth, often. Hypocrisy sets in. You know, we begin to talk the talk, but we're not walking the walk. Then the shoes come off. Remember there was preparation of the gospel of peace. We're not prepared now. Uh, It was Psalm 51. I said Psalm 53. Psalm 51, he ends this way. After confessing his sin and being cleansed by God, then David says, then sinners will be converted to you. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. After the sin has been confessed, I've been cleansed and I got that breastplate back on. Then I can have an effect on people. Then I can witness for Jesus. But if I've got that sin, uh, like God says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. And I can talk and talk and talk. God's not going to use me. I'm on the shelf. The shoes are off. You ever try speaking to someone? It's terrible. You're out of fellowship with God and sure enough, some, some unsafe person comes up and tries to start a spiritual conversation. And you have this nagging awareness that you're out of fellowship with God. And you know you can't do anything for Him. I can't wield the sword because only the Holy Spirit can wield the sword and right now the Spirit is grieved. He alone can handle that great weapon. And until I got my armor back on, I might as well forget even touching it. Now, I can quote verses and I can read it, but it's powerless. And finally, what about prayer? 
Yeah. Like I said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. He's waiting for me to get that thing right. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters. The fight is on, okay? I wish it would stop, but it won't. Praise God, the victory's already won. Remember that. We're fighting a defeated enemy, okay? And as the Word of God says, we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for this portion of the Word of God. Thank You that You have already fought the fight. The battle is already won. Thank You that we're more than victors now through Him who loved us. We pray each one here, Lord, who, who is Your child, that we might daily remember to put on the armor of God and never take it off for a moment. Think of Paul's closing words in 2 Timothy. I have fought the good fight. Oh, how we long to be able to say that, Lord, at the end. To look you in the face as the captain of our salvation and say, Lord, I fought the good fight. I never took that armor off. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.